0: For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com
1: ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where in this episode, we are looking at the tomb from 1986. Layout-wise, it's going to be the same as usual. So, we'll start with a little background information on the film, then there'll be a section on the historical accuracy, and finally, I shall review the film. Right, let's get started. You are a well-regarded doctor of Egyptology who has dug extensively in Egypt and now lectures at the university. However, you have a dark secret as you deal in illegal antiquities. One day... You buy an amulet from a well-known tomb robber, John Banning. However, little do you know that on stealing it, he has awoken an ancient evil. Little do you realise that the blood-drinking queen, Nefratis, has awoken from the tomb. I shall now go over the background information on this film. To start with, as some people may have already noticed, names like John Banning and there's also another person called Andrew are names that are inspired by the Universal Mummy movies from the 1940s. It's worth noting that the script was written in just 10 days and in total the filming took only 13 days as well. So this film was put together very quickly. When it came to michelle bauer who plays nephratis the main villain in the film she was actually discovered by fred olin ray the director when she won penthouse magazine's july 1981 pet of the month when i first read that there's a particular scene in the film where john banning is running away from customs agents and there's like a dog that starts running next to him i actually thought that penthouse may have been like a dog magazine or something And Michelle Bauer may have been the name of the dog. But later on, well, after doing a bit of research, I quickly realised apparently I'm quite innocent. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's like an adult magazine. The film sold 30,000 units, which made it the biggest selling direct-to-video film up until that point. Of course, this was before um, Disney flooded the... Director video market. I mean, you only have to go to 1994 and then you've got Aladdin 2. I think that made about 15 million dollars or something ridiculous like that. And that was a dreadful film. Definitely have nothing on Aladdin 3 where they actually got Robin Williams back. According to Wikipedia by Citation Needed, this film was loosely based on Jewel of the Seven Stars by Bram Stoker. I sort of see it, I guess. I, I think When they say loosely based, they mean incredibly loosely based. It probably is also worth noting that, um, also according to Wikipedia, by no citation whatsoever, they just get the synopsis of the film completely wrong. So, eh, probably not the best source, amazingly. Finally, the budget for this film was $185,000, which comes to almost half a million after inflation. So we are talking about a very cheaply made film here. Right, now it's time for the historical accuracy section of the episode. So I'm just going to go over different parts of the film and see what's accurate, what isn't, and see how accurate the film is overall as well. To begin with, when they go into the tomb of Nefretis it kind of looks a lot more like a medieval castle than it does an ancient Egyptian tomb. It even has a, um, you know, like a portcullis gate and also arrow slit windows, which are those windows that archers used to fire through. So I don't know what they'd be doing in an ancient Egyptian tomb. However, although the ancient Egyptians didn't have portcullis gates, they did actually have arrow slit windows uh, for archers. Um, they could be found in quite a few Middle Kingdom forts and things like that. But you wouldn't find them in a tomb. In the tomb, they do actually have a statue of Bastet. Um, she's in cat form and Joseph John Bannings' guide, actually correctly identifies her and says that she is the goddess of Bubastis. Bubastis was actually the cult centre of Bastet. And in its current form, it's, it's the ruins in the city of Zagazig in Egypt, which is about about 80 kilometres northeast of Cairo. If you do want to look it up, bear in mind it's also called Tel Basta as well. And I will actually say, it is worth looking up. It's a really interesting site. It's even mentioned in the Bible. So, for instance, in Ezekiel, it's referred to as Pibeseth, I, I think it's pronounced. And even when it comes to Herodotus, who was an ancient Greek historian, who's believed to have gone to Egypt, I personally think he did. There are a few people who dispute that. He talks about Babastis, and he says the Temple of Bastet there was actually on an island surrounded by a sacred lake known as an Isheru. There is actually more evidence for this lake as well. So for instance, in a papyrus from Brooklyn, uh, which dates to the reign of Santec I, I believe, it talks about this lake and how a statue of Bastet used to be sailed around it. And in fact, Isherus are quite commonly found around the temples of lioness-headed goddesses. So for instance, you also find them around the temples for Moot as well. And it needs to be remembered that although Bastet is most well known for being a cat-headed goddess, before 1000 BCE, she was more commonly depicted with a lioness head. Until recently, there hasn't actually been a lot of evidence for this river. I mean, like physical evidence. However, by using geoelectrical measurements and geomorph, yeah, I can't say that, and geomorphological investigations, otherwise known as drilling down into the ground and analysing the sediments found, it was actually discovered that there was increased water around the the temple. Anyway. As usually happens I'm guessing off track. I find this topic quite interesting and I've actually written one or two essays on it. Back to the film. I find it a little confusing why Nefretis' coffin is standing upright. I've seen this in a few films and I always assume it's probably just because it's more dramatic when the door opens and she steps out of it. But realistically you wouldn't find a ancient Egyptian coffin standing upright like that. When they see Nefretus' coffin, uh, Yosef, the guide, starts talking about how there's a legend of the daughter of Ptolemy the Great and how she was basically sort of known for sucking the blood out of people and she was so purely evil that she was buried alive. Firstly, Ptolemy the Great was a real pharaoh in Egypt He was the second Greek pharaoh after Alexander the Great and the first Greek pharaoh of the Ptolemaic period. He ruled from about 305 BCE to about 282 BCE. So quite late in uh, the grand scheme of things when it comes to ancient Egypt. However, although he did have quite a few children, none of them were called Nephratis. She's a made-up character. And the idea of her sucking blood from her victims and being buried alive, again, that's purely fiction. That kind of thing just didn't happen. Later in the film, Dr Manners, who buys one of the artefacts from John Banning, says that the artefact he is studying is older than recorded history itself, possibly dating to before the Thinite period. The thing he is looking at is clearly just a cheap prop scarab beetle. But the finite period is actually a real time period, and it's also referred to as the early dynastic period. So what he is saying here does make sense. However, ironically, the artefact he's looking at does have hieroglyphs on it, so it's not before recorded history itself. Further, he then goes on to decipher some of those hieroglyphs and finds the name Nefratis on it. The film's already talked about how Nefretis was the daughter of Ptolemy the Great, so he definitely wasn't ruling before recorded history. There's a little bit of incontinuity here, let's put it that way. Quite a few thousand years' worth of incontinuity, in fact. To end this section, I'll just raise one more point. There's a part where one of the characters, Dr. Stewart, claims that the Egyptians used to remove the heart after death and replace it with a live scarab beetle for luck. No, just no, (laughs) to be honest. Firstly, the heart was left in the body after death because the deceased needed it to get to the afterlife. For instance, they needed it during the weighing of the heart ceremony where the heart was weighed against the feather of Ma'at to see if it was heavy with essentially sin or not. However, you did also get amulets which were called heart scarabs and these, were, these basically went on top of the chest, above the heart, after mummification. And they had one of the passages from the Book of the Dead written on it, called Passage 30b, I think it is. And basically, this passage was also used for the Weighing of the Heart ceremony, and essentially told the deceased's heart not to betray them. You know, not to give evidence against them during the Weighing of the Heart ceremony. In this final section of the episode, I'm just going to review the film and say whether I like it or not, essentially. So, to begin with, I found the opening to this film quite exciting. So it opens with a jeep driven by John Banning jumping over a dune in the desert as a plane flies above, shooting him. On top of that, the music is quite sort of cringy and generic Egyptian-y music, but done in quite an 80s style, which I will admit I'll always have a bit of a soft spot for. So I quite enjoyed that. And in general, the character John Banning in this film, although he's not a particularly nice person, I do think he's quite colourful. He's basically a smart-talking tomb robber, admittedly with quite a bad script, which makes him sound more dumb than uh, smart-talking, but you can tell that's what they were going for. I will say, though, the thing I found funniest about him is that in about 80% of the scenes he's in, it starts with him opening a beer. I don't know why I just find that quite funny, especially considering you never, ever see him finish a beer. Normally, it's either, like, shot out of his hand, or he's smashing it over someone's head. Or, you know, he gets punched across the face and he goes flying across a room. (laughs) I don't know, it just does add, like, a bit of colour to his character, I suppose. I also really liked the character of Nefretus in this film. Although, admittedly, not really for the right reasons. I just kind of found her quite funny. Like, for instance, when she comes out of her coffin for the first time, she's supposed to be over 2,000 years old. And yet she's got a 1980s hairdo. And also, she's just got fangs for some reason. It feels quite clear that they've taken more inspiration from vampires than they have actual mummies. I kind of wonder, this was supposed to be based on Jewel of the Seven Stars, written by Bram Stoker, whether they just got a bit confused between Dracula and Jewel of the Seven Stars or something like that. There's also this phenomenal scene when the film moves away from Egypt and goes to America. You basically see a plane landing and then it's revealed that Nefratus was on it. So presumably she'd had to get a passport and she'd had to go through customs and things like that. The idea of this ancient Egyptian queen who's raised from the dead just sitting on a plane for a few hours is quite funny to me. And it's even better when she gets to the cab to take her to her destination because you notice she's also dyed her hair as well and made it look even more 80s somehow. In general, I I actually quite like the the feel of this film. Uh, It kind of comes across as quite romancing the Stone-esque if you've seen that film or... Or maybe a bit indiana jones-ish one part i kind of did touch on a little bit in historical accuracy section there's a part where nephratus puts a scarab beetle on john banning's chest and it kind of burrows into his skin and sits by his heart this gave me very the Mummy 1999 with brendan fraser vibes you know like these scarab beetles that evie says eat you very very slowly And then whenever you see them eating someone in the film, they basically devour them in about two seconds flat. I mean, here it's a little bit different because it just burrows in and sits by the heart. But I do wonder if The Mummy 1999 took some inspiration from this film in that regard. Unfortunately, the film seems to lose its early momentum in the second half. And basically around this time, David Manners, who's, I suppose he's kind of the main character... He starts investigating the death of his father and the whole film just slows right down. Up until this point, I found the bad acting to be weirdly charming and quite comical. But in the second half, it came across as more kind of annoying and it did show up how poor the script was as well. Also, there were a few instances that really showed up how quickly the script was written and how little thought was put into it. So, for instance, quite a few of the Egyptologists in the film keep saying that Nefretis is a name unknown to them, but then it's revealed that she's the central figure in a well-known legend about her… drinking blood, essentially. So it doesn't make sense that her name would be unknown to them. The reviews for this film were pretty poor, and even modern ones are pretty awful to be honest. So, for instance, on IMDb, this film has 3.4 out of 10. And on Rotten Tomatoes, although there aren't any critical reviews, the public reviews give it 15 out of, well, 100, essentially 15%. I will admit, for myself, I'm split on this film. I actually really want to like it. And if the film had maintained that early momentum... I think I would have, because I really enjoyed the first half of this film. But the second half just brings it down so much, and by the end, I just didn't really care. For those of you that have seen King Solomon's Mines from 1985, this film reminds me a bit of that, in that stylistically, I think the film looks quite good. King Solomon's Mines reminded me a lot of Indiana Jones. This film weirdly reminds me a lot of Romancing the Stone, as you carry on watching, you realise it's all just kind of on the surface and there isn't really much to the film underneath. So, for instance, outside of John Banning and Nefretis, all of the characters are quite bland. When you look at the plots, it doesn't really make sense. And honestly, I don't even feel the film is good-bad for the most part. It is isn't that first half, but overall it isn't. So... Overall, I'm going to give this film a 4 out of 10, but I am sort of sad about that because I did want to like this film. Thank you very much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing, following, leaving a comment? It all really helps me and it really helps this podcast. Next Monday, we shall be looking at Under Wraps, which is a comedy film from 1997 and it's the first ever original Disney Channel movie. Once again, thank you very much for listening and I hope to see you then.